Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Focus in the markets for the past few weeks has been wither tech. Are we heading toward some sort of peak in the valuation here, especially as we see uh, chips uh, start to lose some luster and as we start to have some questions about the likes well, of... Well, you got that downgrade yesterday yeah. by KeyBank Capital. They were talking about Cypress Semiconductor, NXP Semiconductor, both downgrading because they were worried about things like autonomous driving and automobile tariffs. Yeah, well, I think Kevin Landis might be a little bit worried about autonomous driving. He's the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at First Hand Capital Management. Also the CEO of First Hand Technology Value Fund, which trades on the NASDAQ as SVVC. Uh, and he is based uh, typically in San Jose, California. Thank you so much for being with us, Kevin. Thanks. Good to be here. So I want to get your view on the autonomous driving because we really have seen some choppy valuation there with the likes of Daimler investing a lot in it, not getting rewarded, and Tesla perhaps arguably getting rewarded too much. Where are we with, uh, with this area? Well, I think like a lot of complex problems, the way it's being tackled is to break it into smaller problems. So for example, uh, we're all very familiar with cruise control. That's no big deal. But in the last few years, people have started noticing that their new cars had adaptive cruise control, which would uh, take into account how close you are to the car you're following. Uh, similarly, we ha we're now getting comfortable that our car can do parallel parking, which is better than most of us can do. Uh, so they're, they're putting the pieces together. They haven't got the whole thing quite yet, but they're getting really close. Kevin Landis, uh, just to maybe offer people a little bit of your background, uh, firsthand was a pre-IPO investor in Facebook, in Twitter, in SolarCity, in Yelp, in Roku. That's a pretty good track record. Any duds in there that we should just be aware of? Oh, none, zero. Okay, uh, all right. right yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> the reason I ask is because sometimes you learn a lot more from your mistakes than you do from your winners. Absolutely. Success is a poor teacher. And... Uh, you know, for better or for worse, we've had ample opportunity to learn along the way. Uh, and, you know, you, you try to take a lesson uh, from every loss. And when you have a winner, you try to remind yourself that there may be a little bit of luck in there, too. All right. So in that context, tell us a little bit about this world of electric vehicles, alternative fuel vehicles, uh, as well as autonomous driving. Because I want to note that uh, Daimler's chief executive officer, Dieter Zetra, um, He's no longer going to be the CEO. They're turning to Ola Kalenius, who is uh, really the head of research and development. That certainly points the way for Daimler. Well, so the way you relate to your car as a human being is, has, has changed, right? I mean, in, in some sense, a lot of us in the rest of the country are turning into New Yorkers. We just want to get into the back seat and, uh, and, and read or listen to music while the car takes us where we want to go. Yeah. Uh, and and that's, that's kind of a natural thing. And... Uh, we're going to be in this uh, uh, heterogeneous uh, environment here where you've got some people driving, some people in self-driving vehicles, some people who've decided they're never even going to get their first driver's license. And, uh, and they've got, you'll have this underlying technology that gets relentlessly better, but we're not, we, we can't and we won't wait for perfection before we put it out there. So there's going to be some bumps along the way. I want to talk just about your investment process, especially right now, given how much money is being funneled into the tech industry. 
Are you seeing any opportunities, especially in the non-public markets, given how much cash has flowed in? Oh, sure. I mean, there, there's lots of great new uh, startup. You could spend your entire day just listening to new startup companies. Uh, and that's, I think that's been true just for my entire lifetime here in the Valley. Um, but what's interesting is the big bucks flowing in tend to pile up in front of the really popular ideas. So today, everybody wants to invest in AI, some form of AI. You, everybody is putting an AI slide in their pitch deck so that they can say they're an AI company. Uh, and typically, as you could imagine, um, as with any investment, if you're chasing after the same thing that everybody else is chasing after, you're not getting a very good price and you're probably not being compensated for all the risks that you're taking. So, yep. oh, sorry. Well, no, I just wanted to follow on that uh, because then where are you seeing money not flowing that it should be flowing? Well, when's the last time you heard somebody say, hey, it's time to invest in semiconductors, um, a private semiconductor startups? No one says that. And because no one's saying that, we're having a look there. Um, because you know, we, we're not having to go to an open auction every time we want to uh, fund a company. And you know, when you're talking about the evolution of the car, one of the things that's going to happen there is that the power electronics within the car are going to get a lot more challenging. And you're not going to be able to do it in silicon. You have to dive deep into the advanced materials of silicon carbide or, or gallium arsenide or something, or I'm sorry, gallium nitride or something like this. It's really deep, basic, fundamental, underlying tech. It's pretty interesting, pretty exciting, and I run into basically zero other investors when I go to visit these companies. Kevin, I'm going to give you a choice to talk specifics. Uh, Pivotal Systems, uh, Intraop Medical Corp, or Revisum. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that Revisum is a Australian company, right? And it is uh, a company that makes what is described as chemical, mechanical, planarization, and grinding tools for the semiconductor industry. What does it do? Well, so I get to take myself off the hook on Revasum okay. uh, because they're exploring an Australian listing right now. And uh, so because they're, they're out on the road but they haven't filed their prospectus yet, uh, I'll have to come back and tell all you right, all, fair all, enough. all the details another day. But let me tell you, Pivotal Systems Great. beat them to the punch. Uh, they went public on the ASX uh, on June, uh, June 30th. That's when their, their IPO was priced. And for us, this is the first time we've ever invested in a company that went public, but not here in the US, they went down under for it. And uh, the reason was that, that uh, they were less than 50 million in revenues and really didn't have the, the size to make the, the big enough splash to have a nice, uh, sexy NASDAQ listing. Um, but uh, for the Australian market, it's a good fit. Okay, but this is what a company that does controls for the te for the <coughs> semiconductor manufacturing industry. Right. So the manufacturing process of of wafers, semiconductor wafers, involves uh, in a lot of times evacuating a chamber, putting a wafer in there, and then pumping in a very specific type of gas uh, at a certain type of pressure, and then you know you're basically baking the wafer. That's how you process it. Uh, and baking different gases into it. They have dozens of different types of gases and dozens of different process steps. And uh, so just the market for mass flow controllers, which is what uh, Pivotal does, it's about a $500 million market. And Pivotal is a little company with the better mousetrap taking market share there. Yeah, based in Fremont, California. That's right. Yeah, well done. Thank you very much, uh, Kevin Landis, joining us as the Chief Executive, Chief Investment Officer of First Hand Capital Management. And just to note that the First Hand's Technology Value Fund trades under the symbol SVVC, 
and uh, it is publicly listed and publicly traded. And uh, the shares of SVVC, they're up more than 80% year to date. Topic right now, though, the housing industry, and we've got Brad Hunter, chief economist at Home Advisor, to tell us about the housing industry and whether rising interest rates are going to curtail the acceleration in housing sales. We got new home sales today, Brad. They were up three and a half percent month over month, up 13 percent year over year. Also saw an increase in mortgage applications. They were up nearly three percent. What's the role of housing right now? Jim, thanks for having me on. Yeah, demand is strong. The problems for home builders are all on the supply side. I mean, demand might become an issue once mortgage rates get above 5% or if home prices go up faster than I expect them to. But household formations are, are well over a million, really in the 1.3 million range now. You add on a replacement of 200,000 or so units a year or more, and demand is well above production. And uh, most markets are, are still affordable, but uh, yeah. you know, pricing is, is going to become the next issue as interest rates go up. You know, Brad, I'm struck by some of the weakness and where we've seen some of the weakness of late. New York, New Jersey, Westchester, places that are affected by some of the tax changes. I'm wondering how much has uh, the tax cut and some of the alterations with respect to the SALT deductions affected housing values in the Northeast in particular? I don't think it's had much of an effect at all because uh, most people do not itemize and so uh, even fewer are going to itemize in the future given the standard deduction change. So I don't see that as a big deal. Um, in terms of policy changes, I see the tariffs as more of a concern. Really? I mean, when you think, well, yeah. When you, when you think about the home builders and how much production they can bring to bear in this undersupplied market, they're facing what they call the three L's, land labor and lumber. And lumber is really shorthand for materials. So um, lumber, steel, aluminum, these are things that are being affected greatly by tariffs. And it's going to add a couple thousand dollars. These tariffs are going to add a couple thousand dollars to the production cost of the average home. And so it's getting harder and harder for home builders to serve the millennials and other people that are just trying to get into homes for the first time. Well, Brad, in that context of rising lumber prices, does that mean that it is now time to buy home building stocks because they've already sold off in response to that increase in price? Well, I don't give advice or commentary on what, you know, whether to buy or sell stocks, but what I can say is that the, the home builders are, are facing these constraints. And one of the biggest constraints that they're facing is actually the, the other L, which is land. Um, and the land and lot supply is extremely tight. The, the prices of, of land are really making it prohibitive for them to serve the, the lower echelons of the market. I'll give you an example. In Dallas, Texas, 60% of the new home demand is under $250,000, but the percentage of lots that are available that are suited to that price range are much lower. In, in Dallas, the percentage of developed lots, according to Metro study, suited for homes uh, 500,000 and up has risen uh, from 10% 10 years ago to 23.1% in 2017, and only 12% of the lots are suited for homes under $250,000. So 60% of the demand, 12% of the supply. Um, 
you know, so what that's forcing the builders to do is to buy land in locations that are more and more distant from the urban cores and markets all around the country. And, uh, you know, occasionally when they're lucky doing an infill project in a condemned shopping center, closed Air Force base or golf course, but um, they are having to build farther and farther out. Yeah. Brad Hunter, thank you so much for joining us. It sort of uh, ignites my imagination about what homeownership will look like going forward, if it really will turn it into people at the top can buy homes and people at the bottom have to rent or, or how this is going to get reconfigured. A conversation for another time. Brad Hunter, Chief Economist at Home Advisor. It's time to turn to Carl Riccadonna, our chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, to give us some insight into, the, into today's Federal Reserve rate decision. And Carl, just to give you a little bit of uh, oomph there, new home sales coming out uh, just moments ago for the month of August, 629,000. The uh, estimate was for 630, so that was right, seemingly right on target. Uh, but um, new home sales month over month increase of 3.5%. Add that to a nearly 3% increase in mortgage applications. Seems as though the housing market's doing pretty well. Well, Pim, uh, first of all, uh, good morning, uh, and thanks for having me on the program. Uh, housing market's doing okay. If we look at uh, new home sales, uh, they're up about uh, 13% uh, in year-on-year terms. Uh, that being said, we've had a little bit of a cold streak over the last uh, couple of months. So uh, we, we met uh, expectations uh, for uh, today's forecast, uh, but the prior months uh, were uh, indeed uh, revised lower. Uh, that was yeah. true for both July and June. Uh, and what we're seeing is uh, mortgage rates, uh, for example, if we look at uh, 30-year mortgage rates, uh, definitely creeping higher, and this is starting to uh, weigh on uh, uh, affordability. Uh, Above 4.5%? That that's higher than uh, most uh, home buyers are used to. So yeah. historically, absolutely, that's still a very low uh, lending rate, but not right. uh, for folks who are uh, accustomed to uh, what they've seen in the market over the last uh, 15 years or yeah. so. And if we look at what's driving the economy right now, housing is definitely not part of it. Right. Uh, and so it looks like interest-sensitive spending is indeed starting to be impacted by well, Fed rate tightening. And let's pick up on that. We're going to talk more about the housing market uh, later on in this hour, but I want to get to this sort of rate hiking environment, the fact that the Fed is expected to raise rates, and the fact that we saw two-year and five-year auctions this week that were less than inspired. And I have to wonder, why are people so uncertain with the lead-up to this meeting, considering the fact that it's pretty much 100% priced in that they're going to raise rates? Well, that that hones in on a very important point, and that's uh, not the issue of whether they'll raise rates or not at this meeting, because I think that's a fait accompli, uh, but rather uh, what the future policy is going to look like. So those weak auctions, again, they were, you know, Weak-ish, not not uh, you know jarringly disappointing, uh, but this happens at the same time that uh, uh, next week we'll see the Fed uh, ramping up the pace of balance sheet unwind. Uh, the ECB will be uh, ramping down the pace of uh, asset purchases, uh, and all of this has consequences uh, for the financial markets. And so, why do you want to lock in rates now when you know these artificial buyers and artificial holders of assets are uh, uh, becoming less aggressive in terms of uh, their holdings? And I think that fact 
factors into uh, the uh, the appetite at these uh, auctions. Uh, on top of that, in terms of the Fed meeting, uh, again, uh, the rate increase is uh, largely expected, uh, but the guidance for future actions uh, is not entirely clear. So the Fed's leaning towards a December move. Uh, today, they'll have the opportunity to either cast it in stone uh, or retain some optionality ahead of the December meeting. I think it'd be wise to uh, keep that optionality in place and not uh, drive market expectations higher. Uh, and also this notion of uh, where rates are going to be going over the course of uh, 2019. And as we uh, close in on neutral is going to be very key to how financial markets respond. If I can just add one last footnote, uh, the rhetoric from the Fed uh, has seemingly toughened uh, as of late. Uh, initially, there was some notion that uh, the policymakers would move cautiously as they get into neutral territory. That kind of changed towards let's get to neutral and then reassess. Uh, and even some policymakers, like Governor Lael Brainerd, uh, have this notion that the uh, the short-term neutral rate is higher than the long-run neutral rate, and therefore the Fed may have to push rates further above neutral uh, in the uh, course of the, the medium term. I'm just digesting that footnote, Carl. That was a long footnote. Um, can you tell us what role crude oil and crude oil prices at $71 a barrel play in the Federal Reserve's thinking about interest rates, given that President Donald Trump spoke at the United Nations yesterday saying that OPEC is ripping people off? Well, I think it plays in a very indirect fashion. And, and by that, I mean the Fed is not going to respond to an increase in oil prices or uh, a, a transitory shock uh, in the energy price, uh, in, in the energy space. Uh, but uh, this does factor into the performance of emerging markets, for instance, which the Fed, uh, that's not uh, you know on the, the top five list of priorities, but the Fed is cognizant that their actions have consequences across the globe and they want to avoid uh, any type of uh, destabilizing action. Uh, yeah. That's number one. And number two is uh, through business investment. In prior episodes where oil prices have been high, we see a lot of domestic investment into fracking and those types of industries, and that actually supports uh, business investment in the economy. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Carl Riccadonna, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg uh, Economics. I know you're going to be covering this uh, in detail throughout the day. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.